Let me pray for us. Gracious Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this psalm of confession in which the heart of it we see the gospel put on display. The good news of your grace for us. Father, would you help us see with our eyes, hear with our ears, help us to understand with our hearts um, the supremacy of your gospel. And that we would leave here overwhelmed and as the psalmist ended, rejoicing over your grace and salvation. And everyone said, Amen. So we are looking at uh, a number of different psalms for, for this month and, and then also into the first week of September. And today we come to Psalm 32. There, there's 150 psalms in the whole entire Psalter. Um, several different genres, several different kinds of psalms. Um, there are seven that are called, um, we might call them psalms of confession, where the psalmist here is David, um, where they come before and they just, they confess their sins. And um, today we come to Psalm 32, probably the second most uh, um, popular psalm of confession. Psalm 51 is probably the most significant one. Um, but in Psalm 32, we really see four different movements in this psalm. The first three come in the first half, and the last one is um, all the way the last half, verses 6 through 11. And so the, the three movements, um, the first one is the seriousness of sin. Do we do we get and understand the seriousness of our sin? The next one, um, I would entitle it, um, and you may argue against it, but I would entitle it the gift of guilt. That guilt is a gift is what we're going to find in verses 3 and 4. And then in verse 5, um, by the way, if you read the Psalms, you can notice this. Uh, it's hard to tell when we put them up there because... We don't have all of the psalms in, in one page, but maybe on your uh, iPhone, or I know my Bible does it, you'll notice there are breaks. There are, they're like a, an actual space that separates the, the different parts of it. And so the first movement, verse 1, verse 2, they're together. Second movement, verse there's a space between movement 1 and movement 2. There's a space, and then there's verse 3 and verse 4, and then there's a space, and there's just verse 5. It's the center. It's the focal point. It's the, it's the man. It's time to preach this kind of, kind of verse, or at least I, I take it that way. And so movement number three, I just call it the beauty of the gospel. And then movement number four is the last half. And, uh, and you could argue that there's three movements in this last movement, and it's our response. Our response to the beauty of the gospel. So we're just going to take this um, one movement after another, and we get to begin with the seriousness of sin. Now, David says this, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and whose spirit there is no deceit. Now, David's aim here or at least one of his aims, is for us to understand the weight and the depth and the seriousness of our, of our sin. 
And I just want to begin with this question, maybe for you to ponder for a moment. How serious is your sin? If someone said, you know, is sin really that big of a deal? How would you answer that? What kind of language would you use to describe the weight and the seriousness of sin? What kind of words, what kind of language? David uses three different Hebrew words here. And let's take them one at a time because they're so rich in, in meaning. This first one, transgression. The second one is sin. And then the third one is iniquity. And so this first one, transgression, this Hebrew word here is, is pasah. Now, it's important for us to make a differentiation between um, this Hebrew word, pasah, and then the Hebrew word that's going to be used for sin. Because this word for transgression, pasah, it literally means self-asserted rebellion. You know what's right, you know what's wrong, and you just do what's wrong anyway. You know that it's wrong to look at pornography. You just do it anyways. You know it's wrong to gossip. You just do it anyways. You know it's wrong to, to talk negatively about maybe some of your coworkers or your boss, but you just do it anyways. I mean, they're doing it. Why wouldn't I do it? You, you know that it's wrong to discipline your kids out of anger. Now, I never do this, but you know that it's wrong to respond that way. You just do it anyways. They're responding to you out of anger, so I mean, I might as well match it. You know that it's wrong to put your wants and desires before your spouse. You just do it anyways. Having a laugh about this last night, um, my family, uh, my, my wife's side, the whole extended family was together, and I was, I was talking about how I really thought I was a very patient person until I had children, and I just, it was like God just opened up my eyes to the impatience I had, and, and I asked my um, sister-in-law and brother-in-law, uh, they have teenagers, and we don't, um, I, I, I said, what's it like when your kids sin at teenage years? Like, mine, they, they, it's interesting, they know what's right, they know what's wrong, and they just look at me. And it's, it's as if they just are raising their fist at me going, yeah, I'm going to do this anyways, Dad. Are you going to send me to your room? All right. And we were laughing about this, kind of. Uh, so my sister-in-law, with her, her, her daughter right there, my niece, standing right there. She's 15 and saying, oh, oh no, my brother-in-law started. He's like, oh, one of our kids did this, and, and my niece is like, which one? And Tim's like, you want to know? It was you, all right? It was, you're the man, woman, you're the woman. And, 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 and talking about how, uh, and, and then Shannon kind of jumped in and said, we're in the kitchen, and she just takes the milk and opens it up and just starts drinking from it. And I laughed at what Shannon said, because I've literally used the exact words before. Don't ever do that again. Like, we're solving, like, the problem here forever. Don't ever do that again. So she stops. She turns around. Starts drinking the milk. And I love it. The, the word that Shannon uses, I just became unhinged. 
but you get it. And, you know, we're kind of laughing, and I looked at my niece. I said, Reagan, you know what's crazy? Is that your mom and your dad and me, we do the same exact thing. We're just better at hiding it. We are. This word for transgression is a self-asserted, I'm raising my fist against God and saying, I'm doing it anyways. Francis Spufford, he's, he's a theologian. He wrote this. He said, what we're talking about here, referring to sin, is not just our tendency to lurch or to stumble or to just mess up by accident. It's our active inclination to break stuff. Stuff here, including moods, promises, relationships we care about, and our own well-being, and also the well-being of others. And, and this is, this is I, I think, what even adds to the weight of sin, is at the root of our sin is us raising our fist against God. At the root of it is us raising our fist against God and saying, you know what, I know it's right, I know it's wrong, I'm just going to do wrong anyways. But don't miss this, there's fruit that comes out of that root. You're planting something, and here's what you're planting. And if you read Genesis 3, it tells you, and then it just happens throughout the Bible, I don't know, hundreds if not thousands of times. Here's what happens. The fruit of that rebellion is a fracture in relationships with others. You ever read Genesis 3 carefully? Eve and Adam sin willfully, hand in hand. Hand in hand. Together. It's like a romantic comedy of sorts. Look at them sin together. Just outright disobedience to God. To get, that's sweet. That's romantic. Together. But what's the very first words of Adam when God shows up? God, or Adam, where are you? Why are you hiding? You remember what Adam says? <gasps> the woman you gave me did it. You know, Eve's going like, really? Like, you can play me like that. Really? But isn't that what happens? And even in the curse, if you keep reading, there's this division aspect. And then you read the next chapter. Their own kids are born into a fractured relationship to the point where the brother kills them. And if you just keep reading the Bible, pay attention to this. It just happens over and over and over and over and over again. Outright disobedience to God, fractured relationships. This is the weight of our sin. It's not just raising a fist against God. It breaks our relationships with others. And I just marinate on this for a moment because I, I wonder if we get that. This is why divorce happens. It's because you just keep sinning. I, I'm blown away. I've, I've just come to realize it's, nor, it's actually normal for kids to have grief with their parents as they grow up. It's normal for a family to have a level of dysfunction. And moms and dads here, because we got a lot of young people here, and I need this just as much as you, if not more. But what we need to understand is that when we sin against our kids, we are eroding that relationship. And what's crazy 
is you don't see the fruit in its fullness of that erosion in that relationship until they're like 20 or 25 or 30. And it's because you sin. And I know we go, well, they sinned against me. Oh, if we had a scoreboard, they're way up on me, right? They're way up on the parents. But listen, mom, dad, it's on you. You are eroding the relationship every time you sin against your kids. And if you're like, well, uh uh-oh, just hang on because, because we are given a way of redemption. We are given a way to redeem that erosion and, and we'll see it here at the end. So this is the picture of sin. It's pretty weighty, huh? David says, oh, that's just the beginning. This, this word sin here um, is, is hata. Um, everyone say hata. We'll, we'll learn some Hebrew today. Hata. Hata. You can say you learned something. You, like when your spouse does this to you, you can be like, hata, hata. Or, or, or probably more so, you'd be like, pasa. No, that was pasa. Here's what hata is. Hata is this nice path. And to hata is to go off of this path. That's what hata is. That's what sin is. You, you're on the path, and you just you waver off of it. You go off the path, and that should be a pretty demanding image of us. Because friends, to go off the path, what happens? What happens when you go off a path? You get lost. Sometimes, a lot of times, you get hurt. This this same brother-in-law I'm, I'm talking about, he's actually also my cousin. Do the math on that one. Don't worry, I'm not related to my wife. But but my my cousin brother-in-law, he has a friend. And this this is a week and a half ago. His friend has a girlfriend, and she went on this hike. Maybe you read about this in the news. She went on this hike, pretty legit hike. She's actually a very seasoned hiker, is my understanding. And she she went by herself, and she didn't come back. Boyfriend drives up there. Her car is still in the parking lot. And he tries to search. It's nighttime. They bring out the search and rescue. It's been a week and a half. They can't find her. Their estimation is she went off the path and something happens. That's sin. You go off the path and then all bets are off. Which which leads us to this last picture of, of sin. And it's really... It's a picture not of our sin. It's a picture of what happens to us when we're off the trail. It's a picture of what occurs when we do sin. And it's this word, iniquity. And the word for iniquity here in Hebrew is avon. This W sounds like a V. And it's describing the consequences of your sin. Iniquity is not sin It's describing what your sin now deserves. What's now coming for you? And this word literally means wrath. Now, I think we can do all right and okay talking about sin the way we've been talking about so far. But when we drop the wrath word, now we get uncomfortable. Because what this is saying, what, what, let, me, let me put it in the phrase of question. What is this wrath? Well, it's God's wrath. Okay, well, what is, what is God's wrath? What, what is it that our sin deserves? What is this wrath? 
And Jesus tells us eternity in hell. That's the weight of your sin. That your sin, my sin, our sin, it's so weighty that what we deserve and what we have coming for us is eternity separated from God in hell. And we can play the game of minimalizing this. I, I, I know churches who just don't talk about sin. Like literally, they just don't talk about sin because if you have a real conversation about sin, then you have to have a real conversation about hell. And so we just, we, we, we can easily play the game of just going, well, let's just not go there. Let's talk about sin in the generic terms. Let, let's talk about pasa and hata. It even rhymes. Come on, let's just do that. And what we are doing then, if, if we just get rid of God's wrath because of sin, what we are doing is we are turning sin into this little scrape we get on our knees. That's all sin is. If, 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 if there is no wrath, then that's all sin is. It's just a little scrape on the knee. And if, if all sin is is a scrape on the knee, then all the gospel is is a band-aid. And so I know it gets real uncomfortable talking about the reality of our sin, namely that it demands hell But if you cheapen the divine judgment we deserve, we instantly cheapen the cross. And I'm not saying we go make those signs and go to the Mariners game to repent, you're going to hell and, you know, get the bullhorn with it. I'm not saying that. I think that's very ineffective and and just not Christ-like at all. But what I am saying is followers of Jesus Christ... We need to be honest with what scripture says. And it just says, sin is not, wrath is not a little owie on the knee. It's a massive heart attack. And you're going to die unless you get the gospel of the defibrillators that brings you back to life. So how serious is sin? It's serious, friends. It's serious. The next part talks about guilt. For when I kept silent, David tries the unconfessing tactic. I've sinned. I deserve wrath. You know what I'm going to do? I'll just be quiet about it. So don't tell anybody. I won't confess it. David realized that's not very wise because here's what happens. He says, my bones, remember as we talked about last week, this is ancient Hebrew poetry we're talking about. Bones here, it's the hardest part of your body, the most sturdy part of your body. He says, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. My, but for day and night, your, who's your? God, God's Hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. He's describing the agony of his guilt. Now, why didn't I call this movement the agony of, of guilt? Because clearly we see that. 
Instead, I'm, I'm making a bold statement. I'm saying, no, 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 this is talking about the gift of guilt. How is guilt a gift? That's weird. Well, let's back up for a moment. Just for a moment, let's talk about guilt. I, I'm, I'm holding on to this statement that guilt is a gift and that, and that we're gonna, that's going to come into fruition, especially in verse 5. That guilt is a gift. But then, if we cruise on over to our culture, our culture takes a different tactic here, don't, don't they? Our culture not only says guilt is not a gift, our culture says, let's just do away with guilt. That, like, that's one of the modern accomplishments of today. Like, we just don't have guilt anymore. And the only way you can get rid of guilt is by getting rid of a clear understanding of what's right and wrong. And so here's our culture. You know, can give me a nod, yes or no, if, I, if I'm on to something here. But our culture has gone the route of saying tolerance is a greater virtue than truth. Tolerance, you know, you believe that and they believe that and I believe this. But you know what? Let's just all get along and not even mention who's got it right. This is our culture. We have elevated tolerance over truth. And by doing that, we've therefore said, you know what? Let's just not have a right and wrong. That way we don't have to deal with guilt. And so we live in a society that has really been quite successful in making it clear, at least in the area of morality, let's just not do guilt. There's no guilt. So which is it? No guilt at all, or guilt is actually a gift. Let me give you an illustration. There's this movie that came out in 1984. Ironically, it's the same name as our church. The movie's called The Mission. Robert De Niro, one of the main characters. And what happens is Robert De Niro is a slave trader in South America. And what he does is he goes into the depths of this particular jungle. There's an indigenous tribe back there. And, and what he does is he abducts some of the men takes them, sells them as slaves to work on a farm. He comes home from one of these business trips and he finds his wife in bed with his brother. And he kills him. He's arrested and he goes and he stands before a judge. And the judge looks at him and says, not Guilty. Not guilty. Free to go. And you would think this character is a sense of freedom, a sense of joy, a sense of, ah, I'm not guilty. I'm not guilty. He leaves and he sinks into a deep depression for months. What's going on here? He's just been told he's not guilty. No one is pointing guilty. In fact, the judge himself says not guilty. Why the depression? He's not guilty. Um, Franz Kafka, he wrote a novel, German writer, years and decades ago. Wrote a book about this whole idea that I'm talking about. And he has this statement 
And the statement goes like this. We live in a state now of being sinful absent from guilt. This is the state in which we live in. In in other words, he's saying we live in a state today that is absent from guilt. No one's going to look at you and go guilty, 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 guilty. We live in a state that is completely absent of guilt. But here's the deal. It doesn't change the fact that you're a sinner. And that sin will weigh on you one way or the other. And David in verse 3 and verse 4, he is speaking about the agony of guilt. But he's not saying guilt is bad. Guilt is like a smoke alarm. I've got, I've got two wood fire stoves in my house. It's the way we heat our home for the winter. And if you don't start the fire, I've got a crummy heat stove, wood stove on the bottom floor. And if you don't pay attention to it, it gets smoky real quick. And the smoke alarms, this house was built in 83. They made smoke alarms different than friends. They had no, no qualms about volume. It's agonizing to the ears. Even better, guilt is like a carbon monoxide poisoning. I can smell smoke. Smell it. See it. I've been told you can't smell and you can't see carbon monoxide poisoning. Guilt's a bit like that. It's like a carbon monoxide poisoning Alarm that goes off and your ears start ringing so that you will go, oh dear, I need to take care of this sin. So if you feel a sense of guilt, don't run. Don't run into denial. Do what David does. He realizes something ain't right here. I do need to run, but not in denial of my guilt. I need to run to the gospel. Ironically, in that movie, he's so overwhelmed by his guilt that he goes to a church because he can't handle the weight of it anymore. And that's what David does. Verse 5, my favorite. He says, I acknowledged my sin to you. (laughs) Just tired of feeling this this guilt from my sin. (laughs) I'm going to you, God. And I acknowledged my sin to you. And I did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions, my sins, my willful rebellion to you. I will confess it. And you, God, forgave. Now get this. What did God forgive? The iniquity of my sin. Not just his sin, but his iniquity of the sin. Remember, what's the iniquity? It's the wrath. I think we can just read through this quickly and and treat it so lightly. This is a Mount Everest of a line. 
says, God forgave the wrath I deserve. Forgave him. I have all this wrath. I have eternity in hell hovering over me. And he just, he just forgave him. No merit, no good works, no go pray 10,000 Hail Marys. All I did is I just confessed my sin. That was it. Just confessed my sin and the wrath was gone. This word for gave here, nasa. Now, I looked up forgive in the English dictionary, and the word literally means to excuse. Excuse. It's almost like that, that courtroom scene we just talked about. The judge says to Robert De Niro's character, not guilty, go. You're excused. It's not what nasa means. It literally means to pick up and carry a burden. It's a bit different than excuse, isn't it? So back to our movie, The Mission. It actually begins with a different storyline than our main character, Robert De Niro. The way it begins is with a missionary going up to this indigenous tribe. The only way you can get up there is to scale this massively steep cliff with a Snoqualmie Falls-like of waterfall coming over it, um, coming down it. And, and so you have to scale up. So this missionary scales up to the top of it, gets to the top. He's able to enter into this indigenous village. These, these, these people see this missionary who's a white man, and instantly they go, slave trader. They take him, they kill him, they tie him to a cross, send him down the waterfall, and down below at the bottom are the missionary's buddies. He's dead. Another missionary goes up, gets to the top. There's kind of more to it, but I think you could just say, by the grace of God, they don't kill him, and they accept him. And he starts sharing the gospel with this tribe who's, who's seen many of their men taken and sold as slaves. And many of them give their lives over to Jesus Christ. And then the story turns to our character, Robert De Niro, and it talks about him, you know, doing his slave trading, killing his brother, not guilty, Overwhelmed with guilt, he goes to the church and he sits down and the priest says, you need to go up there and make things right with this village. Now, I, I haven't seen the movie in over a decade, but I'm pretty sure that Robert De Niro's character was okay with it, knowing that, hey, I probably will die, but that's what I deserve. I deserve death. For what I've done, I'll just go anyways. And so he goes and he, he decides to bring all of his fighting armor with him. And he ties it in this massive burlap sack. It's twice, three times as big as him. 
He ties a rope around it, ties a rope around himself, and he has to scale this massive cliff. And, and the scene is epic. I mean, he's climbing, he's slipping, and he's holding, you know, probably a hundred plus pounds of armor. He gets to the top, finally collapses in exhaustion. Looks up. What does he see? This indigenous tribe. Seems as if they notice who he is, the slave trader. One of them takes a massive knife, comes behind Robert De Niro, grabs his neck, cuts off the rope that was carrying the burden and just kicks the burden to the side over the waterfall. And Robert De Niro's character begins to weep as they choose to cut off his burden rather than cut off his head. God says, I picked up and carried the burden of your wrath. Now here's where that illustration falls apart. God does not cut off your burden of wrath. Throw it in a waterfall and see you later. He picks it up, carries it, and he puts it on the shoulders of Jesus Christ. And Christ is murdered on a cross in the most horrific and bloodiest of ways. And if you ever wonder why, why so bloody? Why is the cross so brutal? Because that was our wrath that we deserved being completely poured out on Jesus. And you know, you know all we have to do to receive this gift of grace is to, get this, confess your sins to Jesus Christ and trust in his death as the atoning death for your sins and the covering of the wrath you deserved went on him and you will be saved. That's guys, that's just incredible to me. I mean, like, that, that's it? Like I, like, I don't have to work for this? I don't have to try for it? Like, I just, I just confess the gospel's so beautiful, isn't it, friends? <laughs> this doesn't get old, does it? This doesn't. Preach the same sermon, sermon next week. And it's just like, what? Because you're going to sin this week and you're going to have to deal with it. Like, but guys, it's paid for. It's paid for, for free. And I was reading one commentary, Augustine, who, who, who was this incredible theologian, third century. He points out this amazing reality that this psalm, though it is about sin and though it is about confession, but more than anything, what this psalm is about is the surpassing paramount beauty of the cross. That 
our sin is an outright fist-shaking to God, but if we come to Him and confess it, there is nothing but grace. And I love what 1 Peter says. It says, knowing that you are not ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. In other words, guys, you want to know the weight of this forgiveness, this Nassah, is God didn't buy it with gold or silver. He bought it at the cost of his son, Jesus Christ. Can I just get an amen to that? And if you're here, God, if you're here and you've never trusted in Jesus as your savior, here it is, it's free. Confess your sins and he, he is faithful and just to forgive you. And if you're here and you've done some unspeakable things, you've got a pornography addiction, no one knows about it. Maybe God, of course. Or maybe there's infidelity in your marriage or maybe you know your sin better than I do. We have been given the opportunity to come to the cross and it's completely wiped away. And that leads us to the fourth movement. And I'm just going to, this is where it just gets practical. And, and here's the great thing. I don't need to go in depth here. It's just, it's just da-da, da-da, da-da. The fourth movement is our response. And, and the first one I think is so huge and unpracticed altogether. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. In other words, every single one of you, here's what you should do. Confess your sin. Just confess it. Unless it can I just be real for a moment? Just think, of, think about a time where you've sinned in the past 24 hours. Shouldn't be that hard. Did you actually stop and confess that sin to God? How about this? And this is, this is, David is trying to get after this. This is a prayer that was prayed in the congregation of the whole entire faith family of Israel. What David is also trying to teach us is when you sin, confess it to the person you've sinned against. Don't sin against your child and kick yourself and repent to God and confess to God and fail to confess to your children. That, that you want to know how to not erode that relationship with your kids when you just keep sinning against them? Here's what you do. When you sin against them, go to them even when they're four or five or six. It's weird. It's so weird. And you look at your kids and say, Dad, Dad overreacted. I should not have said those things to you. Son, will you forgive me? <laughs> he didn't quite know what to do with it. What? All right. Hey, you did sin against me. He's not that smart. He hadn't pulled that one yet. Teach your children the gospel by confessing your sins to them. When you sin against your spouse, I'm sure you don't do this, but when I sin against my wife, it's usually just an underhanded remark, something that, of course, I felt like she deserved. And I'll say it. And here's what's interesting. Maybe it's not interesting. It's obvious. I know the moment it comes off my lips, I've sinned against her. And here's the thing. She also knows it, too. She kind of gives me that look. 
And you know what I'm apt to, to do? I'm apt to just look at her and give her the I'm sorry eyes. Just give her the I'm sorry eyes. And I retreat. It's kind of like my way of saying, sorry, sweetie, I was wrong. You know what's wrong? Is I don't look her in the eyes and say, I just sinned against you. And sweetie, I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? Don't do sorry eyes. Don't. Look at them and repent of your sin. And they probably have some repenting to do themselves, but let them do it, not you for them. And that's what David is saying. Let's go do it. Guys, the gospel's incredible. Just go and confess. And I wish I could get into the depths of, of what's going on right here. Um, surely to the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. It's, in other words, it's saying, if you wait too long, you've gone too far. If you wait too long to confess, you're just probably not going to confess at all. Verse 8, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. This is talking about repentance here. This is what we ought to do. Don't just confess your sin. Repent. Don't just say, I blew it. I should not have put myself first. Actually change your behavior. And then here's the last part, and this is what I, we get to do right now. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, you upright in heart. One commentary I read literally said, imagine what this was like when it was originally read in the congregation of Israel. They literally would shout with joy the grace they've been given. And as we step into a time of worship now, I want to invite you to shout with your heart. Shout with joy at the beauty of the gospel that you are more sinful and more flawed than you could ever imagine. And yet at the very same moment, you are more loved and accepted through Christ alone than you could have ever imagined. And we have an opportunity to come to the table and, and to celebrate just that. And when we come to the table and when we take the bread and when we take the cup, we are literally reenacting. We are reenacting what happened on the cross. And we are saying, Jesus, thank you. Thank you. Help me taste. Like literally help me taste the beauty of the gospel in this. And, and may we do that. And I also don't want to miss the opportunity for some of you to use this time as confession. To confess to God. Maybe you've got to look to your spouse and confess to them. And then may we rejoice. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven. You did not simply excuse our sin, but you picked it up and picked up the wrath that we deserve and you dumped it all out on your son, Jesus Christ. Give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear, give us a heart 
that literally is overflowing with awe and wonder at the beauty of your gospel. Give us the freedom right now to confess our sins, knowing that you will say, I forgive you. And Father, as we come to the table, let us taste and see how good you are. 